Welcome, viewers and listeners, to the Thinking Fans Premier League Football Podcast. Each week, we get together with our besties, who are current pro players, real coaches, academics, and set heads. Today, we're joined by soccer analyst Harshel Patel and coach and analytics celebrity David Seymour. I'm host Chris Mumford. Bella Ciao. We're sponsored by the Premier League Guide, a 300-page book for those mad about football, Moneyball for Football, Opposition Analysis Plus Eye Candy. The next update is available at www.thinkingfanmedia.com and on Amazon. Over the coming weeks, we'll be transitioning to the Thinking Fan Football Club podcast platform and YouTube. Please subscribe. Match day 20 and 21 has been where the rubber hits the road. The league slammed in 20 matches during seven days. The transfer window, on the other hand, seems to be a passing as a non-event. We chat through matches of note as well as will the table get more clear or more fussed up in the coming weeks. We do a deep dive and we wrap up with transfers. Harshel, why don't you get us started off with the Southampton-Arsenal match, uh, which was probably one of the first midweek games of note. What did you see there? Yeah, before I do, uh, I do that, Chris, I thought you were going to introduce David Seymour as, as a Tom Hardy lookalike, because to be honest, he looks a lot like <laughs> Bane from The Dark Knight at the moment. But uh, yeah, uh, on, on, on a little more of a serious note, obviously, the Southampton-Arsenal game... Um, to be honest, Arsenal have been on a on a pretty decent run, and they've been they've gone a little under the radar in the sense that uh, they've not lost for a while in the league. Obviously, they lost to Southampton in the FA Cup, but they've not lost for a while in the league. They've been keeping a bunch of clean sheets. They've also not conceded too many goals in that time, and they they they've quietly made their way up the table towards the top half of the table, maybe even Europa League contention if if they can keep this run of form going. And th- that continued in the Southampton game. I thought one thing that that I wasn't expecting to see from Arteta was his use of Nicolas Pepe on the left, where, I mean, he's, he's primarily played as a right winger, both uh, back in France before he came over to Arsenal, since he's been at Arsenal. And it was interesting that he played him on the left and then he had Cedric, who's a right-footed, and primarily a right back, former Southampton right back, at left back, because Kieran Tierney is out for a while, and you ideally want Bukayo Saka up the field. So he didn't play him at left back. He played Saka on the right, Pepe on the left, and he had a right-footed center, uh, right, uh, right-footed player playing at left back. So it was Pepe providing the width to an extent, and then somewhat creating the space for for Cedric to sort of underlap him at times. Although he did go out on the overlap as well, and that's. Something that's uh, that that that's very reminiscent of what Pep Guardiola does quite a lot, where it'll either be the fullbacks who are providing the width or the wingers providing the width with the fullbacks tucking inside. Especially, so, I mean, Pep obviously does this to a level where one of them becomes almost like a central midfielder. But it's a similar tactical concept of trying to provide numerical superior, superiority in the center while maintaining width. So that was interesting, and and it, I mean, Pepe had a decent game. He, I think. He's also getting his confidence back a little bit now. Um, Saka obviously had a great game, scored a good goal as well, and he's been a catalyst for for Arsenal over the last over this time when they when they've been on a decent run of form. So, I, I think that I mean some of the criticism that Arteta got earlier on earlier on in the season was unwarranted because I mean the table is so tight this season that 
you can lose two or three games and lose maybe five places in the table you know so and conversely win two or three games and shoot up four or five places in the table so given that it's that tight i think arsenal do have the quality to maybe make it to the europa league and we saw a little bit of that quality in this game david do you think arsenal is settled and will continue to be on the ascendancy or or not it's a good question um i think i think there's definitely some positive signs um i was i was really impressed with them against southampton and the the united game was just i think a little bit of a disappointment i think they have shown some flexibility as a team which this season which i think is is good as well i think when we think of arteta's arsenal we think of you know possession heavy we expect them to get sort of 60% possession that's pretty standard for them um i thought it was interesting to know how against southampton and and united they tried playing not necessarily on the counter as much but they certainly looked to play a little bit more directly and quicker they had done in either, um, in other games. So we talk about them being settled. I think there's definitely a confidence in them to start being a little bit more flexible tactically. Yeah. You know, I I think if you may, remember in the last pod, we talked about how just absolutely ruthless their schedule is is going to be. And I imagine if you asked any Arsenal fan, would you want to go one one win, one tie against some top six top seven teams, they, they take it in a heartbeat. So um, I think kudos to them on that. They've got uh, Wolves coming up, Aston Villa, Leeds, uh, Benefica twice, Man City, and then Leicester. I mean, that's just a murderer's row. So they've, you know, you, it'll be interesting to see how things settle. Pepe is starting to show some signs of, uh, of improvement. It'll be very interesting to see how their their new pickup and their how much it impacts their midfield. I thought their midfield was sort of getting settled, um, but uh, it'll we'll find out in the next thirty days is the key takeaway. Well, I've, been, I've been really impressed with Emil Smith Rowe since he's come into the side, yeah. and I think that the Odegaard signing is a really great sign because it's going to allow Smith Rowe a little bit more. It's going to take some pressure off of him for sure, mm-hmm. and. I think that's vital for a young player who's just come straight into the team um, like that. So that'd be an interesting interesting one to watch, see how Odegaard comes in and impacts him. And like you said with the schedule, yeah, that's a really difficult schedule. And I think that when you're playing difficult team after difficult team after difficult team, it can be taxing on you, not just physically, but mentally as well. And if things aren't going well, it's how you pick yourself up before you play the next difficult team three days later and where are you at after that run of games where let's say you've got an easier run of games afterwards have you managed to weather the storm and can you reset yourself and, and play against those potentially easier teams um the way that you should be able to so that'd be interesting it'd be interesting to see for sure Harshell, any thoughts quick thoughts on southampton you know there seems to be southampton with ings and southampton without ings uh in terms of results you know, they've got Man United uh, coming up uh, and then uh, they're, they're going to be playing the Wolves, believe it or not, on Thursday and Sunday as part of the fifth cup, uh, the FA Cup fifth round uh, and then uh, Premier League match. What What's your take? I mean, are they kind of where they belong in terms of being in 11th place right now? No, I wouldn't say they belong in 11th place. And I've said, uh, this is something I've said earlier as well, that when everybody's fit, Southampton can beat anybody in the league. Mm-hmm. But they've really struggled with injuries to key players. I think 
if uh, both their first choice fullbacks, for example, Ryan Bertrand and Kyle Walker-Peters, are out injured at the moment, mm-hmm. and they don't really have cover, Yann Valery is an 18-19 year old kid. Jake Wokins is actually a centre back playing out of position at left back, so they don't have cover in the fullback areas. Mm-hmm. They don't have a lot of cover in midfield as well, where Mohamed, uh, sorry, um, Ib- I think it's Ibrahim Diallo who's been. I mean, he was signed in the summer, but he he it's taken him some time to adapt. He, I think he had an injury as well, but now he's having to play. Uh, they've they've not had uh, they've they've lost Oriol Romeo to an injury as well, and he's been really key to that central midfield alongside James Watrous. Ings has been fit, unfit, uh, you know. So they they there's the only issue I see with Southampton is that they they need to build up the squad a little bit in terms of depth. Um, they tried to do that in this window. They they pushed really hard for Brandon Williams, for example, to come come on loan from United because he could cover both fullback positions. But United haven't uh, let him go out on loan. They pushed really hard for Ainsley Maitland Niles. Again, similarly, can cover both fullback positions, can cover midfield as well. But it seems as though uh, oh, it, it's been confirmed that he's, uh, Maitland Niles has actually gone to West Brom on loan. So they've not really been able to bring in the cover that they need. So. I think that is what is going to hold them back, especially because again the nature of the season is such that you are going to see injuries and COVID and all of that is going to cause a lot of disruption. So, if you don't have enough quality on your bench, then I mean, I would have loved to see Southampton, and I'm not saying that it still can't happen, but I would have loved to see Southampton sort of maintain their early season form and, and position on the table. But given the injury problems they've had, yeah, I, I guess a top ten finish would be a great one for them this season, David. What is your impression of the Tuchel transition been like for Chelsea? Yeah, it's been a it's been an interesting couple of like first two games or so. I think we've seen a clear like effort to put a distinct style. Um, I mean, the first game was sort of death by a thousand passes without little, you know, sorry, with little to to show for it, and that that was I wouldn't say that was necessarily expected. He he has a more possession based style than Klopp, and I think that because of his career where he followed Klopp at Mines and he followed Klopp at Dortmund, um, I think people are sort of expecting to see that style. And he certainly does have that in him. That there will be pressing and counter pressing, but um, it was interesting to see just how pass heavy it was. There was a lack of forward movement, particularly in the Wolves game. I think there was a lot of lateral passes in that game and little movement in, not just necessarily in the final third, but in the central areas, in the half spaces. There wasn't a lot of players dropping in and out and Wolves were happy to sit in, in a mid to low, really a low block. And when you're playing against a team that's doing that, you've got to have sharp movement in the final third. And there was a there was a lack of that. I think against Burnley, um, I mean, Burnley were going to play in a similar style to, to what Wolves are doing, albeit with a different formation. But they did a much better job, Chelsea, that time of um, creating chances with a similar amount of possession as well. And I think they were good value for that 2 0 win. Okay. Um, any thoughts, Harshell, on, on Chelsea? Are you, I mean, he's had six days, seven days. He probably still doesn't know where the foul cabinet's and barely knows where the bathroom is, much less expecting him to transform tactics for a, a talent-laden team. But any observations on from your point? I mean, 
the fact that he had one training session that he was there for 24 hours before the uh, before the wolves game and and still managed to get his his uh the way he wanted to play out and and managed to sort of communicate that to the players could be seen on the, on the pitch at Stamford Bridge i mean i think that was the most number of passes by uh, uh uh by a team in their in their first game for a manager in the premier league ever since opta started keeping statistics and i think as as david said it was it was i think chelsea made more passes in the first half of that game around 420 odd than some teams make in in the full 90 minutes of of some matches you know so that as as david said there there was it is going to be a possession heavy style because that is what he, he has been sort of uh known for but he ca- he does have the other sort of side of things in his locker as well and another thing which you need to remember about tukil is that he's not really wedded to a shape as such we've seen a back 3 um a, a sort of 3-4-3 3-4-2 one in in these two games but don't be surprised if he turns up with a 4-2-3-1 or a 4-3-3 in the next game because he is extremely flexible with with regard to formation he does tailor his approach based on the team that they go uh, that uh, he's going to face as well as obviously the players he has at his disposal we've not seen ngolo kante yet play under him and he's actually spoken very highly about ngolo kante he tried to sign kante uh, for for psg when he was the manager so i do expect to see kante come into the side i expect to see uh, maybe werner play and play in the sort of position that he played against burnley where he is that sort of left sided forward sort of the role he played at RB Leipzig I think that the best out of him Mason Mount I thought had a really good game against Burnley as well as the sort of as a sort of roaming number 10 um Callum Hudson-Odoi has been very good I think as a right yeah, back certainly good. offensively he's not yeah he's not been tested defensively as much but offensively he looks really good he's holding the width he's getting in behind his crossing has always been good and we can see that that sort of uh and the impact it's having on Chelsea's attacking you know so And of I'll course, Marcos Alonso, Mark. I'll say this: yeah, so, just that, so, sorry to jump on, in, Marshall. If you're if yeah. you're a Chelsea if you're a Chelsea fan, you're going to be pleased. Though the Burnley result certainly wasn't like setting the world on fire, you're going to be pleased that playing against another team, you put Wolves sat in, and so did Burnley. And I think that Chelsea struggled against Wolves to break them down, and they I think they put in over over thirty crosses in that game. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure they put in over thirty crosses, which is just sums up that you're struggling to break a team down if you're putting that. volume of crosses and I know they put a much uh lower amount I think they put less than 20 in against Burnley still a high number but not so much when you've got 70% possession um and you you saw them I mean I think their their xg was double in uh the Burnley game than what it was in the Wolves game so you you're seeing in a very short space of time someone clearly put some like he's clearly putting some good work on the training ground well, good well let's turn our attention to the Tottenham Liverpool match Arsha what were your impressions of that game? Um I mean the the reverse fixture was one where I sort of agreed with Mourinho's assessment to an extent that the best team lost in a way because I mean Spurs had a, a few very big chances in that game in the in the reverse fixture at Anfield was they lost but I thought they should have scored the goals to win that game. This I mean in, in this fixture I thought I mean it, I I genuinely think Spurs are going to really struggle without Harry Kane and we saw that to an extent in this one because you he the the way Mourinho has set up 
Spurs, he's done a good job from a defensive point of view. And that's always the case with Mourinho, that he does manage to get defensive improvement out of the teams that he manages. And it's the offensive side of things that has taken a toll. And Spurs have been completely reliant on, on Kane and Son to score their goals and create their goals. And you've lost... I mean, Spurs haven't just lost a guy who's scoring goals. They've lost their primary creator as well without with uh, Harry Kane injured for maybe three, four weeks or so. So that, I think, I mean, the broader takeaway from my, just not just the Spurs-Liverpool game, but the Spurs-Brighton game as well over the, at the weekend is that uh, contrary to previous periods where Kane has been injured and Son has stepped up and scored the goals, I struggle to see that happening this time around because, I mean, who's going to supply the goals, or, I mean, not the goals, but the, the, the bullets or the passes to Son to score. And I think that this this period is, is going to be one where Spurs could actually struggle a bit. And there is actually a, a case to be made for, for Mourinho to bring back Dele Alli into the team because he, I think, is the one player other than Tangway and Dombele uh, who can provide that sort of creativity that Spurs are not going to have now with, with Harry Kane injured. So I, 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 I'm actually a little bit worried for Spurs till the time they can probably they can get Harry Kane back fit on the pitch. Well, and just keep in mind, Spurs are going to play Chelsea on Thursday, uh, and then they're going to play Everton in the fifth round of the FA Cup, Man City, uh, West Ham, uh, Wolfsburg twice. Right? That's a that's a pretty full schedule. Wolfsburg or Wolfsburger? Who are they playing? Is it? I thought it was Wolfsburger they're playing. Uh, I see Wolfsburg here. It's Wolfsburger. It's Wolfsburger. Wolfsburger. Uh, interesting. Um, oh. Okay. Well, um, the short of it is, is <laughs> they've got a pretty full plate without Kane. And I, I will say Tottenham, I did enjoy watching it under Pochettino. It, it's almost like, and seeing this transition reminds me of, of a hobbit transforming to Gollum where pressure <laughs> is Mourinho, right? where, where they've gone from this really progressive, exciting, expansive football to this, you know, this crinkly shelled defense, which is very hard for the the big six to unpick at times, but they're going to struggle in terms of creativity on picking apart teams below them. So, um, and, and they're not even doing well against, uh, uh, you know, top six teams. So do you think though, Chris, that, I mean, I'm a Mourinho fan, but I can. I'm not a fool. I can clearly see that things aren't going well right now. Do you think though that so much of that is Mourinho can't do what he wants to do, which is based on that defensive um, solidity? When you've got Serge Aurier, uh, Matt Doherty, Eric Dyer had a shocker. Joe Rodon, who I'm a big fan of, made a mistake obviously for one of the goals. You've got listen. They've they've obviously got creative issues, and I'm not denying that at all. But you've also got defensive mistakes on a, at the moment on a relatively consistent basis and Mourinho can't do what he does unless you've got that watertight base well I, I guess the way I look at it is they've had 21 goals scored against them which puts them in second or third best in the league in terms of goals allowed so I would argue that I want to give Mourinho credit when he's due. He's done an outstanding job of that. It's, mm. it's, it's about, it's about finding that, that balance. Right. And I think they, they desperately need an Ericsson 
right? I mean, they, I, they need a, a super creative type that can unleash, you know, I think bringing Kane back is a great solution, but the, there's got to be a couple of other folks that are released too, because that the Sun Kane show is starting to get a little worn. You take a look at the Golden Boot uh, race, they're, they're starting to fall back because teams are, they know how to play, play against them. You know, they've got 34 goals scored, which still puts them in the top sixth, seventh in terms of goals scored. But to me, that's where I think if, if they're going to be serious for the top six, much less a Champions League is they're going to just have to increase goal output. They don't have the creativity. Do I blame that on the setup or do I blame that on the recruitment? I don't know. The thing is though, that they've been... Con- I see what you're saying with the yeah they've, they've not conceded that many but the goals they've conceded are avoidable and when they're playing the the game of winning winning these fixtures on tight margins on holding onto a one nil lead for example which is a risky business but too often you see them concede that late equalizer or that late winner or something which is an avoidable situation I think the one that stands out just to my memory is the game against Wolves they concede late on I think it was maybe last month. And Ben Davies just lost his marker at the corner, and it was it was such a like a basic error of just letting your man go, and the whole thing is unravelled. I mean, even the goal that Brighton scored the other night, Ben Davies has been pulled away from the, the rest of his compact defence. He's been pulled away. They played a pass back inside. It's gone back into the half space where Ben Davies should have been, and they managed to work the ball back in for a cross on a goal. There's, it's but David. I, I think as a former and current goalkeeper, every goal is avoidable, right? I mean, everybody makes a mistake. And and rarely is it one massive mistakes. Sometimes it is. Uh, Sergio Aurier has been very good at some massive mistakes. But it's a series of little mistakes along the way. And it's how as a team do you overcompensate for that, right? Oh, but, but Mourinho's philosophy is all, all based on making <laughs> winning, you know, getting goals by forcing the opposition to make the mistakes, which is why he would play with less possession. And so when you're making the mistake... It's not like they're giving the ball away. It's little defensive lapses and things that seem things that are pretty uncharacteristic, I think, for a Mourinho team. But yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I think that you look at they've they've lost against Brighton. They drew with Fulham, right? So we're not talking about big six teams here necessarily. Uh, Wolves in their former glory was was Europa level, but they, they're they not. They tied against Wolves, right, who are 14th or 15th in the table without a legit striker, right? They've tied against Crystal Palace. So they're not – I don't question whether Tottenham can get it done against the top six team on any given Sunday. What I question is is that they've gone – the Mourinho mold – is there enough creativity to pry open the clams that are called the bottom half of the table? That's I know you're, you're a big, uh, or you, you were at least, a big Lloris fan. Oh, I'm a massive Lloris fan still. You, especially you, since... You don't, think, you don't think that there's an issue with the goalkeeper at Tottenham? I, I don't. I don't see, I don't see him... Uh, I, last year... He, was, had a, he had a stinker against Liverpool, right? He had a stinker against Liverpool, but every keeper is going to have. I, I can tell. I, I got 
Leno had a couple stinkers last year. Ederson, Allison, you know, it, that's part of the game, right? Um, and it, for keeper, you want to make two or three routine saves. You want to distribute the ball. You want to have one or two solid saves. And then you want to have one unbelievable save, right? That is the recipe for being a great goalkeeper. Lloris still checks checks those boxes on most game days. So, you know, we'll – the Tottenham piece it will be a work in progress. Let's keep 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 this uh, debate going. Um, do we want to say anything about Liverpool? Because I think Liverpool actually had a decent match against Tottenham. Harshell, do you oh, want to? Uh, we can talk about that. We just let's not talk about the other Liverpool game. Well, that, that one leads to the other. But Harshell, what? Tell us where you think Liverpool is right now, given their week against Tottenham and against West Ham. I think they've. They look like they've found whatever was missing. I mean, these two games and the game, the FA Cup game against United at Old Trafford, where they lost 3-2, but they did score the two goals. Um, and that was the concern, right? Like, the, the fact that Liverpool had suddenly stopped scoring and they weren't even creating chances. It's not that they were creating chances. There was a lack of creativity that we were seeing from Liverpool that we were not used to under Jurgen Klopp for the last three or four seasons or so. And... So it came as a bit of a shock in that sense that Liverpool were not creating chances against teams for three, four or five games in a row. But I think they've managed to find that again. Um, it's still a bit of, I'd say, a work in progress. I'm not saying that they've reached the heights of last season or the last couple of seasons. But um, in both the Spurs game and the, and the West Ham game, I thought they were a lot sharper. They were a lot quicker, especially in the West Ham game. Obviously, we saw the second goal where... I think three passes and and they they went the length of the pitch and, and Salah scored. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. You saw Curtis Jones come on at halftime against West Ham, have an immediate impact and and set up Salah for the opener. Uh, and in the in the game against uh, Spurs as well, we we saw that I, I think that it was just it, it's fine margins. You know, it, the passes were a, were a lot quicker. Which is that, you know, instead of taking two or three touches, they were taking maybe one touch or two touches at the most. Um, there was a zip. There was a bit of a tempo to their passing, which was missing. And there's also, I mean, you you need to real, uh, you also need to give credit where it's due to, to Jordan Henderson. I think he's playing in an absolutely unfamiliar position at centre-back and he's managing to do a pretty good job. I don't think he's been caught out while playing at centre-back in terms of making a defensive mistake or, or been, he's not been caught out of position. I mean, against West Ham, I thought I thought he would have a problem with the likes of Mikel Antonio, Thomas Suchek in the air. because And West Ham are one of the heavier sort of crossing sides with the likes of Cresswell uh, providing deliveries from the left. Sufal from the right as well at right-back is also a very good crosser of the ball. Suchek has turned into, basically turned into <laughs> Moyes' new sort of Fellaini no, um, don't that, say that. <laughs> I know everybody's comparing him, and obviously they're very different players. I think he's a much better player than Fellaini, to be honest. Having seen Fellaini at United as well, but I mean, uh, it's just that typical. They're, they're both big, uh, sort of lads <laughs> who play in midfield and get into the box. So, so you know, there's a comparison to be made there, which is a lazy one that most people in the media have been making, and I'm a little bit guilty of that uh, right now as well. But the point is that I thought that Henderson would really struggle against Antonio. And Suchek, but he didn't. He he. Yeah. I was really surprised that he was able to hold his own. So as much as obviously yes, they, 
creativity back i think a lot of credit goes to henderson to have adapted to an unfamiliar position and literally leading from the front as captain in that sense you know the couple notes that i'd make i i still think it's the one goal on 90 shots is the butterfly's wings that causes the typhoon in the subcontinent it's 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 random chaos theory i just think that you're going to have these runs and it's just i i hate using the term regression to the mean or finding one's mojo again but the truth is is that last season the liverpool got lucky and klopp said that they got lucky that yeah. the the matches where they lost to burnley 1-0 uh this year or lost to southampton 1-0 were tied aston villa uh i'm sorry tied newcastle 0-0 and west brom 1-1 those games just didn't happen they were able to squeak out with a win much in the same way that man city right now seems to be squeaking out some 1-0 wins when the going gets tough and i just think that liverpool and man city are really well designed to break the clamshell of the lower half of the table more so than a man united and a lester and a tottenham are and that's why i i i've said this since the beginning of the season it's going to come down to liverpool and it's going to come down to man city and i have no idea who's going to win it's going to, i don't know what the injuries are going to be right i don't know what covid's going to impact that so i will i i want to ask you this question david do you think that west ham is at peak at the at the table Did, have they already peaked for the season Mm. Um that's a really good question. I think I think it was disapp- it was disappointing performance because it was one of our worst performances of the season and it was a moment that could have I think yeah could have really transformed where the season's heading. I think if you ask most West Ham fans what even at this point what they'd hope for a top half finish would be great, top 8 would be brilliant. So I don't think that anyone's necessarily thinking we're suddenly going to, you know, sneak into the top four or whatever. We've got a really difficult run of fixtures coming up where it's big team after big team. And so that would be a difficult period. And if you get through that relatively unscathed, who knows? I think that, <laughs> I think that, I think we're probably at a point where, yeah, fifth place is is probably maybe as, as, as well, we were in fourth, obviously, but I think fifth, yeah, we're we're looking down rather than up as well i would say mhm well it seems for the most part they're um winning against lower half of the table teams they're kind of back and forth with mid table and and they're losing against the better match the teams and that's probably why they're in fifth place right now so it, i think that seems like a sensible position for them um to be um at this point uh I really wish that they could have picked up another striker. Um yeah. you know what's what's your take on their most recent acquisition, their loan? I th- I think that although I'm not necessarily the biggest fan of Lingard as a player right now or necessarily as a fit for West Ham, what it does mean is that the board are listening to David Moyes in terms of what he wants because it sounds like Lingard was a player David Moyes wants to bring in and I've not been the biggest fan of our work in the transfer market over the last 18 months, uh, particularly. I mean, generally, uh, under the Golden Sullivan regime. But I think that 
hey, we're not rushing into a, a deal for a striker. That's may, maybe progress in a sense. Yeah, I'm disappointed. I think Yarmolenko has shown that he can potentially fill a hole there if Antonio gets injured again. But yeah, it would have been nice to have had um, a bit more cover there. Odemipo Odebeko, who is a young lad that I think we pinched from United. Um, I think he's 18. He's playing for uh, under 20. Uh, under 21s or is it under 23s whichever one it is it's our reserve team and he's doing okay I think and I know that he he came on in our FA Cup game back in January so he might get a bit of a run and that, that might not be a bad thing he's quite highly rated but yeah it would have been nice to bring just someone in but having said that Chris we're in a we're in a place right now where we're not going to get relegated it'd be great to get into Europe but if I'm honest with you we would need a lot of investment in the summer if we were in Europe and we actually wanted to do something with that. Good. Harshal, what's your take on the, the Leicester-Leeds match? I thought um, Leeds pulled off. I think it was a very important away win for Leeds because there's just, I mean, Leeds have had so much media attention this season in the Premier League with the whole... Um, obviously the whole effect around Bielsa. So, and it's a lot of it has been negative. A lot of it has been, um, I mean, people looking down on them to an extent as to almost a sense of, you know, you should know your place, you're a promoted side. How are you sort of having these thoughts of being able to go toe to toe with a, with a Liverpool or, an, or, a, or, a, or, or a Manchester City and, having, you know, uh, thoughts of being able to beat them and, and having more of the ball and attacking even when you're in the 95th minute with six or seven players. So it's, I think it's, it's, a, it's, it's a, it flies in the face of what uh, a lot of, um, you know, British, I mean, not, I wouldn't say British as such, but like the, the established British football wisdom is when, which is basically when you get promoted to the Premier League, Try and play it safe. Play. Try and get uh, you know scrape a few wins against the teams around you. Try and hold out against sort of the bigger teams and just survive for the first couple of years before you can hope to build anything bigger. And I think Leeds are showing that they don't need you. Don't need to do that. You know, you can come up and you can absolutely uh, wow fans uh, and and uh, supporters alike with a style of football that's unique and with that's very well suited to the squad you have and people talk about Leeds not being pragmatic I think Leeds are being absolutely pragmatic because I don't see them doing well in any other style of football than the one they're playing right now under Bielsa because they've been playing that way for the last two two seasons or so under him all the players know their roles and I mean look at the improvement he's got from this group of players who are probably mid-level championship at the best at best other than the guys they've bought in, obviously brought in, obviously. So, in that wider context, I think this was a great result for them. They, um, again, we saw the staples of of some of the staples that we've seen from Bielsa uh, and the Leeds team. You know, running off the ball, uh, running, and when I say running, I mean just the amount of physical output you get from them. Um, their movement was sharp. Um, Patrick Bamford has had a bit of a drop in terms of I think he hadn't scored in the last four games, but he looked really sharp. He set up the first goal and I think his finish for the second goal was outstanding. That's a top quality world-class finish to be able to sort of get that amount of bend into the top corner from that angle with your left foot. So, and I think Stuart Dallas is one of the most underrated players 
in that lead side probably in the premier league because he's played so many positions he's played center mid he's played right back he's played left back he's played on the wing and he seems to do everything well you know so and that's true for a number of players in that lead side where they can you can put them anywhere and a lot of them will still put out a good level of performance so from a leads point of view yes i think it was a very good win it was a bit of a statement win in that you know what we we aren't going anywhere we are uh we can still sort of pick up wins against the big teams against teams that are supposedly better than us and yeah as they've been one of the best teams to watch in the league and long may that continue yeah i i found the the match particularly interesting I, you know i think the headline or maybe the lead was buried uh with vardy not playing uh because uh in in the opposite fixture they feasted off of that high line and I will say I I don't know how to quantify this but I really feel like Leeds defenses their team defense is maturing. I just feel like that those channels that are oftentimes opened in the middle or the or or in the in the mid spaces um they aren't there as much as they as they were in the past. What I did find interesting is is that Leicester did actually have they had 18 shots eight of which were on target now leeds had eight shots of which seven were on target and the expected goal was lester 1.73 and leeds 1.81 so i guess what that says is that 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 bamford goal must have had an awfully low expected goal um uh because they just they didn't have a lot in terms of xg and then the ppda Leeds was at 7.23 and Leicester was at 8.2. So in terms of intensity and in defensive play, it's fairly comparable. Um I will tell you this was one of the most enjoyable matches for me to watch during the season because it just seemed like there's always something going on, right? It, and and I'm, I and and the adjustment that Leicester made in the second half which put Leeds on the back foot it's nice having those sort of things happen right i mean that's that's kind of it it kind of had all those pieces except for lester really not giving making a a great uh match of it so um uh 3-1 uh win well deserved david should we be worrying about lester any is this are, are, or are they going to bounce back right after a vardy return yeah i think i think they'll be fine i think uh i think the game was a blip i think that Lester got pulled into a, a style of game that they probably didn't want. It was quite open, which against the Bielsa side isn't really what you want. So uh I'm sure they I'm sure they'll bounce back. They're they're on a pretty good run up until that point as well, so even even without Vardy. Okay. Good. Well, Harshal, I I feel obliged for every podcast we do have to talk a little bit about Man United. even though uh a loss and a tie is is not something not a headline you want to lead with uh i don't know if they fall there's any at least the pundits aren't saying that they've completely fallen out of the race i i just think that maybe some realities come back and quite honestly the fact that we we haven't even mentioned man city at all uh even though they're at the top of the table they're just quietly manufacturing those 1-0 sort of wins when they need to and and then having some showcase wins help us un- unpack what your take what's happening in manchester 
I will say that I think David has jinxed United to an extent because I remember last week he said that it was the title was United's to lose and they've gone to <laughs> and they've gone and on they to pick up. <laughs> we picked uh, United picked up one point in the two games since then, so <laughs> could be that you've jinxed it, David. But uh, on a serious, um, yeah, the Sheffield United game. We've the thing is we've seen that sort of thing happen with United on multiple occasions. this season and i mean if you look back at solskjaer's reign not just this season during his time in charge where united are such a i mean because it and i think this is going to happen as long as united stay a team who are reliant on individual brilliance and individual expression rather than a defined system of play in that you will have good runs of form when everybody is playing well but that can immediately come to a halt if two or three key players of maybe you know three or four players are out of form because you don't have those established patterns of play for the players to fall back on and when there is uh, when players are you know when they're not confident they're not going to be able to pull off um, sort of off the cuff brilliant attacking moves i mean we're seeing martial again in the era crisis of confidence which i think this is the third or fourth time during his his um, time at man united where he's gone through a spell where he just looks disinterested he doesn't um and and there's not really a lot of output coming from him bruno fernandes is having perhaps his first sort of barren spell since he arrived he's not really scored assisted done anything in the last four or five games i'd say um i think rashford for some reason marcus rashford looks like he's not that confident in the final third because he i think there's a bit of indecision that's crept into his game we saw that against Arsenal where he had a brilliant chance where a cross came in he was playing on the right a cross came in from the left and he had the the opportunity to take a shot first time but he and with a fairly open goal but he chose to take a touch and in that time the 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 keeper had come back the defenders were back to cover and and the chance went away there were there was another in, instance where he was running through on goal and he didn't i mean he either needed to choose to pass to the runner outside him or take a shot but he chose to do neither and again the ball was taken away so i think rashford is also going through a little bit of a crisis of confidence i was really surprised that edinson cavani didn't take the two chances he got in the game against arsenal there were two huge chances i think the first one i think had an xg of 0.7 which just tells you how big a chance it was you know and the second one i think was 0.4 So I mean you have 1.1 xg worth of chances falling to Edinson Cavani you'd expect him to score at least one of them. So it's it's I wouldn't say it's a blip. I mean yes it is a blip in the sense that United uh obviously lost to Sheffield United picked up a point point against Arsenal sort of has stalled the momentum a little bit but I think this was always coming because United are a confidence team at the moment. They they there will always be these waves and uh sort of troughs where you will now and i wouldn't be surprised if united aren't able to sort of come out of this and we see a few poor performances and maybe a couple of poor results in the next three or four games because that is just how united have been under solcher david what's your take on the on the other side of town man city yeah they look they're really good <laughs> the um yeah i i don't know they they look, like you said they they I would pull out the results when I need to at the moment but then at the same time there's been a couple of blowouts as well. I I yeah, right now they they look super strong and they'll they'll be a, a difficult team to to stop. But having said that, I think they're on like a club record at the moment um level of consecutive wins. 
I think it's 13 wins in a row or something like that. Yeah. So by surely by law of averages, someone's got to give us some stage. Um, so who knows if the teams around them can start to pick up a little bit of form. Like you said, Harsha just said about, you know, waves, peaks and troughs. We'll wait and see if City can keep up this level for the, the entirety of the season. Yeah. In the next month, Liverpool, Tottenham, Arsenal, Man United, West Ham are going to have some things to say about those streaks. So um, they're going to have a pretty... It seems like every team is, is having a, a difficult schedule in the next six weeks. We're really getting into the business end of the season. Um, as, as far as the league table goes, anything, any interesting observations there? I just think the general, the general cluster of, of teams, and we spoke about Southampton earlier being in the 11th, but realistically, they could be above West Ham in a couple of weeks' time. So I think if you're looking even just away from the title picture, it's certainly interesting in that, in that side of things. I think we're starting to see a little bit more of a distinct uh, bottom group. It looks like Burnley are, are going to pull away from it. I think um, they've shown enough. That Newcastle win was huge. Be interesting to see if they can build on that. How about you, Harsha? Yeah, as David said, you know, there's this little group of clubs from like say fifth down to tenth, eleventh. Everton, obviously West Ham, Arsenal, Chelsea, uh, Southampton, Aston Villa. All these clubs. I mean, all of these teams could be in the running for. Europe in one form or the other, you know, whether it's Europa League or Champions League. So, and it, it's that sort of season where, as you know, three or four good games can move you up the table, three or four bad games can sort of take you down uh, 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 somewhere, you know, four or five places. So, it'll be interesting to see how all of these teams are able to cope with that expectation, with with that uh, sort of uh, that that they could be in a European spot potentially by the end of the season, given how tight it is that they may not need to have excellent campaigns. You can have a pretty average campaign, I think this year and still make it to a Europa League spot. So that is obviously one uh, thread I'm going to keep track of. And towards the bottom of the table. Yeah. As, as David said, the Newcastle win is huge. It, I think it's, it's done a lot to pull them out of trouble. And I thought that that game itself was quite interesting from Newcastle's point of view, because I mean, Newcastle played a midfield diamond. I never thought I'd say that under Steve Bruce, where they played with a midfield diamond. They played with a lot more possession, with a lot more intent, with a lot more um, attacking threat. And people are putting that down to the arrival of Graham, uh, Graham Jones as uh, an assistant from Bournemouth. And apparently he's had a lot of input on the training ground and helped sort of devise this. So it'll be interesting to see if Newcastle can keep that going. Uh, Brighton, obviously, big win against Spurs. I think they've kept three clean sheets in a row now. So they've been, and I've, according to me, they've been one of the most unlucky teams in the league this year. I mean, if you look at expected goals, expected points, definitely by that, by those metrics, they have been. But they've not done well because they've not scored goals and their finishing has been really poor. So I want to see them do well, hopefully, if they can sort of uh, build on these performances and otherwise from a relegation point of view I think Fulham are going to give it a good fight they look a little more um, tenacious and, and there looks to be some sort of fight there West Brom I mean 
Sam Allardyce, you never, you really never know with Sam Allardyce if he can pull off another one. And even though yes, Sheffield United pulled off a shock win at Old Trafford, I they they're not going to survive. So it's going to be Sheffield United and two others. Looks like Fulham and West Brom at the moment, but don't discount either of those two being able to make it out. So I want to change gears to talk about the transfer market, and I I think the big headline is the lack of transfers for the most part. Um, Keep in mind that in last January, there are about 242 million euros on 88 arrivals spent. Uh, So far uh, this year, it's 47 million euros on 32. Europe is in the same position. In the Bundesliga, it's 41 million versus 196 last year. In La Liga, it's 31 million versus 152. Syria I is even more sparse. 215 million last January, 17 million this year, right? And Ligun has only got 18 million compared to 124 million euros. So not much money being spent. Um, are there any transfers to chat about now as, as we are about to wrap up the pot? I think uh, Liverpool doing a little bit of business on the last day is interesting. I think they needed to. And I think the John Matip uh, injury forced that hand a little bit. So... Mm-hmm. I'm excited to see how Ozan Quebec does in the Premier League and really interesting to see Ben Davies come up from Preston as well. I wonder what that means for Nat Phillips' long-term future because I think with all centre-backs fit, that would leave them with six in total. I think that's a little bit unfair on Nat Phillips because I've actually been relatively impressed with him. So we'll wait and see what happens there. But yeah, certainly excited to see Quebec uh, play. Good. Harshal, any other notes on the transfer market? Um, Yeah, I mean... I think this was to be expected given COVID. Just clubs' finances have taken a hit to a massive extent. Um, from a, a player point of view, in terms of new arrivals, I mean, just I'm I'm gonna see how William Jose goes at Wolves. He's been brought in on loan from Real Sociedad to fill the void that Raúl Jiménez has left uh, since his injury. So he started the last game in the Premier League, but. Uh, I don't. I mean, it'll be. I, I want to see if he can have an impact, and if Wolves can benefit from having a proper number nine. Because I mean, he's an absolute unit. I mean, when you look at him on the pitch, he's he's he has the physical presence. I think to be able to play in the Premier League, to be able to carry out a lot of the responsibilities that Jimenez had for Wolves. So um, it'll be interesting to see if he can adapt and if he can help them sort of climb up the table because they've, they're far off where we ex- where we expect them to be usually um, uh, over the last couple of seasons. So that, and along with obviously the two transfers that Liverpool have almost, I think, uh, sort of sealed on the last day with Ozan Kabak and Ben Davies. So whether those guys can immediately slot in and help Liverpool in terms of their centre-back issues. So that's those are the maybe two or three players I'm looking at. Beautiful. We'll leave it there today, gentlemen. We're sponsored by the Premier League Guide, Moneyball for Football, Opposition Analysis plus Eye Candy. The current update is available at www.thinkingfanmedia.com and on Amazon. Please subscribe to Thinking Fan Football Club on YouTube and your favorite podcast platform. For this week, Bella Ciao, Bella Ciao, Ciao, Ciao.